0: Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University, podcasting today from Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Rick Hanischek. Rick is the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and he's written widely on education and education policy. Rick, I'd like to start our conversation by asking you what you and others have found in trying to understand what makes students better educated. For example, we hear a lot about the need to increase expenditures on schooling as a way of improving education. What's been the pattern of educational spending in America in the recent past? Is it, is it up or down?
1: Well, it's tr- quite dramatically up over, in fact, the whole century of the 20th century up till now. Many people think that, in fact, we've been starving our schools and holding back on funds. But, in fact, funding has increased on a per-pupil basis quite dramatically and quite steadily throughout uh, as long as we can tell. So since 1960, the real spending, after we adjust for inflation, per pupil has more than tripled.
0: Tripled in real terms, that is the real resources that are going toward education per student tripled since 1960. That's, That's an incredible increase. And how's that turned out? What's been the impact of that expenditure increase? on educational outcomes?
1: Well, that's been the disappointment. Um, What we've seen is that test scores of students have been virtually constant or flat from 1970 through today. We regularly test a random sample of U.S. students in reading, math, science, and those test scores, while they've jiggled around a little bit, have essentially not changed.
0: So we've spent dramatically more, I assume, since 1970 as well. That tripling didn't all take place between 60 and 70. I assume there's been a steady increase since 1970. Is that correct?
1: Uh, That's correct. Um, There was a large increase in the 60s, but uh, that was partly when the spending was done for people taking the test in 1970. Uh, They benefited from that.
0: We hope. But in subsequent years, we didn't see any payoff for additional expenditure.
1: That's right. And the problem is that it's this funding and spending has gone in exactly the way that people call for. We have more experienced teachers today, more than half of our teachers have master's degrees, and pupil-teacher ratios are dramatically down over this time period. So exactly the things that we're exhorted to do have been happening and they have not shown up in terms of student performance.
0: So over the last 30 years, smaller classrooms in terms of number of students, Uh, more experienced teachers, in theory, better – excuse me, in in measured terms, better educated teachers, and yet students don't seem to have gotten any more educated based on these test scores. Precisely. And why would that be? I thought, um, don't you get what you pay for? Uh, Surely if you spend more on education, won't you get more education?
1: Well, education differs from the market for new cars or whatever you want to look at. If we're buying a car, we might think that we get more quality when we spend more for that car. Uh, But in education, it's largely run by the government uh, and is uh, not subject to many market forces. So we see that things happen that improve the happiness of the people in education, but don't necessarily translate into better performance of students.
0: So you're suggesting the money has been spent, uh, spent, but not spent wisely, and yet these examples you gave, uh, smaller class size, better educated teachers, better experienced teachers, why wouldn't that have any impact? Are there cultural uh, – I'm sure the defenders of these policies argue there's cultural forces working in the other direction. Other uh, special education requirements, surely that soaked up some of the money. Do those explanations carry any water?
1: Well, they are important. We do uh, spend more on special education now than we did in the past, uh, and I think to good purpose because we are now providing education to people that weren't in schools before. Uh, but the amount of increase in special education simply can't explain a tripling of spending. What we do know is that teachers are very important and that it matters whether you have a good teacher or a bad teacher. It makes a big difference. That's what most parents know in this business. It just turns out that who's a good teacher is virtually uncorrelated with whether they have graduate education and a master's degree or whether they have more experience, uh, save perhaps in the first year, first year teachers. Uh, require a a little training or a little break-in period, but after the first year, you don't see much that happens in terms of performance of individual uh, teachers.
0: Presumably it could go in the opposite direction as well. You get people who are burned out, tired, bored, lazy.
1: Sure, there's there's random occurrences uh, over time, but essentially there's no general increase in performance with uh, experience past the first year or two.
0: Now we know in in economics that the correlation isn't causation. So when you assert that there's no relationship between, say, smaller class size or more experienced teachers or better educated teachers and educational outcomes measured by test scores, you're not just looking at crude correlations. Isn't that right? You're looking at more sophisticated statistical analyses.
1: That's right. There's um, Class size uh, the example of probably the thing that's been most studied in education, and it's been looked at from a whole variety of viewpoints, including one random assignment experiment that always gets the attention of everybody. In the mid-1980s, the state of Tennessee, before they put more money into reducing class sizes, decided to run an actual experiment where they randomly assigned some students to small classes and some to large classes. That experiment suggested that there were small gains in the first year that somebody had a small class.
0: What were the range of class sizes in that experiment?
1: Oh, the range of class sizes were from an average of about 23 or 24 students compared to 15 students. So it was a dramatic difference in class size, and as you can fill in the blanks, a dramatic difference in the expense of this. And what we found was, uh, at best, uh, there were small, modest gains in kindergarten or first grade, but that they didn't keep going so that if a student got a gain in kindergarten from being in a small class, they didn't have increasingly larger gains from small classes in subsequent years. So that's um, uh, often held out as the gold standard that we had some positive effects. And that evidence is balanced by a wide range of um, simple to very sophisticated analyses of class size that essentially show that there's no systematic relationship between class size and student performance.
0: Controlling for other factors that might affect outcomes and performance, such as family background, I presume. What are some of the other variables people try to control for in these experiments?
1: Well, the main thing that people look at in the statistical work is uh, family background differences, or differences in the teachers, and so forth. Uh, my own interpretation is that there might be some modest gains from smaller classes, but they are dwarfed by the variations in teacher quality so that they just don't show up. Well, let, me, let me come back
0: to that. You mentioned that earlier. You know As a parent, you refer to parents understanding this. I always know when my kids have good teachers – Mediocre teachers, disappointing teachers, phenomenal teachers. Uh, it, it's information that students may or may not possess because a great teacher might be very demanding and might be unpopular, but as a parent we can see the impact on our kids. We, not, we might not be able to quantify the difference between a bad and a good teacher easily, but we certainly know a good one from a bad one. In empirical work that looks at these uh, differences in, in quality, How do you measure that? You you asserted a minute ago that quality of teacher makes a difference. How how has that been measured empirically in the studies that have been done? How reliable are those studies? What do you think the reliability of those studies are?
1: I think that there is developing a fairly broad literature now that is quite reliable on this issue. The way these studies work is to actually look at whether Kids in a particular classroom with a particular teacher tend to gain more in achievement in a given year than in another classroom. And what we see now when we follow teachers over time is that some teachers, year after year, get high growth in student achievement. It's not the high level. It's a, it's given where they start, how far do they progress? What's the gain that they get? Other teachers get low gains year after year. It turns out that these are substantial differences. Um, I'll, I'll give you the magnitude. Uh, if we went from an average teacher to a good teacher, um, which if I put in a distributional terms would be like the 85th percentile versus the 50th percentile. so we move up to a quite a good teacher. Um, a, a low-income student, who had a good teacher... A student
0: student from a low-income family situation.
1: Exactly. Um, We've been told frequently that the only thing that matters is family background. And we know that family background is an important factor and that this is related to socioeconomic status, income levels, education levels of parents, and so forth. But if we look at a student from a low-income family, and imagine that this student had one of these good teachers three years in a row, or maybe four years in a row, compared to an average teacher. The gains with that good teacher would be expected to overcome the average difference between a low-income student and everybody
0: else. So you're saying that the quality of the teaching would compensate for any family background disadvantage that a kid would have Precise. empirically. That's what's that's what's been observed. And and what kind of data are, are you looking at there within a school system across a state? How wide are you, know, are you looking at a, a case study of one school there? This obviously isn't statewide averages. This is very micro data, looking at very specific teachers within a school. I assume
1: this is following individual teachers within. Within schools, within large districts. There have been several studies now that have done this where we have uh, literally thousands of teachers and can compare the performance of thousands of teachers with tens of thousands of students uh, and sort out how much it seems to be due to the student and how much seems to be due to the teacher. And in that work, we find these very dramatic differences. It's just that they're uncorrelated with the education level of the teachers, the experience of the teachers, and so forth.
0: So you're saying you can't look at a teacher, measure something tangible, such as here's a teaching experience, whether they have a master's degree or not, uh, and and know whether they're a good teacher or not. But within the data, it, it screams out there are people who have the knack of this and people who don't.
1: Precisely. Precisely. And so we don't know why some people do better than others. That's been the missing answer. My own current view, for just for operational purposes, is to assume that it's something innate in individuals, that some people are born to be good at it, some people are born not to be so good at it, uh, and that when we think about policy, we should just try to figure out how can we keep the good ones in the classroom and how can we get rid of the bad ones, as opposed to, Worrying about can we go back to the education schools and teach a new course that will, in fact, make them better?
0: The magic bullet that'll, uh, yeah, the, the handbook. It's like the handbook of parenting. If I could just get that manual when I leave the hospital, it gives me the, but we do know. It's it maybe an interesting, I was making a joke, but maybe it's an interesting parallel. Some people are good parents, some people struggle. It doesn't, uh, there is no handbook. You, you learn along the way, and some people just seem to be better at it than others. Um, it's certainly a plausible argument. I think all of us uh, as students knew teachers who were wonderful, and there wasn't anything identifiable about them be, uh, compared to the teachers we didn't learn a lot from, just they were, quote, better teachers. So what's the answer then? You say we want to have more of those good kind and, and not so many of the other kind. How do we get more of the good kind? Well, that's, And we're talking about the public school system right now, I assume, mainly.
1: Absolutely. We're, we're talking within public schools and across public schools. How we actually do this is an open question. Um, my own response, uh, being from an economics background, is that we have to set up incentive structures that encourage the good ones to stay and the bad ones to leave. Um, we don't have much experience with actually running those systems. Now, what we do have is a little bit of evidence to suggest, first, that principles can tell you who are the really good teachers and who are the really bad teachers. There's a lot of confusion in the middle of the distribution, but not at the ends. My own view is that almost everybody who walks into a school can tell you who's at the extremes in that there's very little difference of opinion on this. The principals can tell you that. The teachers can tell you that. The parents can tell you that. The janitors can tell you that. Everybody can, um, will point to the same people. But our current system is designed to insulate the actual operations of schools from that information. We have tenure um, for teachers in some states, such as California, as early as the second year of teaching, somebody has tenure. So that protects people that aren't very good from any kinds of management operations. We have generally rigid contracts for teachers that don't reward good performance. Uh, They only reward experience and graduate education. The things that we have found with certainty don't matter in terms of teaching.
0: As a fellow economist, of course, I'm sympathetic to the use of incentives. The critics of those approaches, such as merit pay, uh, where teachers will be paid according to performance, have argued... uh, well, yeah, like contrary to what you said. Well, it's hard to know who the good ones are. It would be subjective, but too much power in the in the hands of the principals. H- how would you actually implement such a system? Um, and are there any are there any states or school districts or schools that are trying more creative methods to improve on that?
1: Some districts are trying to move in that direction. Um, as I said, we have very little experience with how to do this. And this seems like the exact place where we would want to experiment. We would want to run some different kinds of systems to find out which seem to work, which seem to identify good teachers, which seem to have the right characteristics and not bad outcomes of leading to fighting among teachers or what have you. Um, And so that's that's my first answer. Now... There are some districts um, that have tried this or are trying it. The Denver School District has gotten a lot of publicity. They are trying differentiated pay. It turns out that very little of it is related to actual student performance. A lot of it is related to other measures of the background of teachers. The city of Houston has talked about introducing a system that has more um, information about student performance. There are a few examples that we've seen um, in Tennessee there's a few places where they've tried it and gotten pretty dramatic results from using statistical models to, to identify the good teachers. There are a couple small school experiments in Arkansas that were privately funded where um, a donor gave money to to teachers, based entirely upon the average test score gains of students in the classroom, and got dramatic differences, and the teachers there liked the system. Uh, Contrary to the general view that teachers don't like it, the teachers liked this because they got rewarded. More money, yeah.
0: Uh, One of the issues you raise, though, you raise a lot of issues with that that answer, but one of the issues you raise is the role of the principal. Uh, So we start off by saying that that the incentive structure facing teachers isn't does not reward performance. It doesn't encourage the good ones to stay and the bad ones to leave. It would be better if the principals paid according to performance. They had that information, but they don't have the freedom right now to do that. But they also don't have the incentive to do that. They don't. They're not the residual claimant the phrase we use in economics for the owner of a business who captures some of the gains when it's run well and who suffers when it's run badly. There's no competition in most public school districts. The students, if they live in that neighborhood, have to go to that particular school. The principal is going to keep his or her job regardless of the performance of the school. So can we imagine a world where the principals would have, if they had the freedom, what would be necessary to give them the incentive to care about the quality of the outcomes more than they do now.
1: Well, Russ, you raise an extraordinarily important point. Um, it would be a disaster to run a merit pay system with big rewards for performance in which the principals themselves were not subject to also performance rewards, because that's just what teachers fear. They teach. They fear that much of the evaluations will be politically based and on. Personal
0: relationships. Um, personal perhaps, relationships, corruption. things that don't
1: matter right. to student performance. Therefore, it's very important that the principals themselves have incentive systems that are based upon the overall performance of the schools in some manner. You want a performance pay for principals and then to give them the freedom to make the decisions.
0: Now, private schools have that to a large degree. Obviously, um It's imperfect, as in any real-world situation. But in a private school, there are customers. They have a much freer choice of exit compared to a public school student or parent. Surely we have a lot of experience with how private schools compensate teachers and deal with outcomes. Is there any evidence there that that this system is appealing to private schools where there is more of a ownership situation in in the sense that – that, that principals who fail to respond to parent desires and parent demands in a private school system will get fired, And w- although it's much harder to, and I'm sure nearly impossible in some of situations to fire a public school teacher. What do we know from private school experience on this issue?
1: Well, unfortunately, we don't know as much as we would like to know. Private schools often do not make data available and do not open up their records to researchers to look at. Um, from what we can tell, first, there seems to be more variation in salaries within private schools than are in public schools. It's su- suggestive that that they're aligning salaries with performance. But more than that, it appears from some suggestive evidence that private schools don't have really widely varying salaries, that they're within again, reasonable ranges for experience and so forth, but they are much more careful about who they keep and who they retain, so that they make their decisions often on hiring and retention as opposed to public schools that essentially make no retention decisions. All all retention decisions, for the most part in public schools, are made by the teachers themselves. Do they want to stay in teaching right. or not? Yeah,
0: that makes an incredible difference, That 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 factor. Now, You suggested we'd be better off in a world where teachers were compensated based on uh, test outcomes or other types of objective measures. Um, What about the worry that that many people have that that will naturally encourage teachers to quote, teach to the test? If your salary is um, related to student outcomes, you're going to want those student outcomes to be high. There is a c- uh, corruption issue there. there. There's a there's a cheating, always a cheating potential. It has to be monitored. But what about the mo- the more uh, I think philosophical worry that true education won't take place and you'll just get kids who are good at taking tests and won't be thoughtful citizens, productive workers, pleasant spouses, uh, etc.
1: Well, there are um, important elements of that that we have to pay attention to. Uh, I think. It is true that many of the current tests that we give for accountability purposes in the US today are not up to the standards that we'd like. We would like better tests. What's wrong with them? What do
0: you you think is missing there?
1: I think many of them are very simplistic. They're low-level tests. They do not rely upon developing complicated uh, analytical powers, but they're very simple things. On the other hand, We can create tests like that. And I think that we should pay more attention to evaluating a range of things first. If we had a good test um, which range that covered the range of material that we were interested in, then there's nothing wrong with teaching to the test. That's exactly what we want the teachers to do. That's what you and I do when we're in a college classroom. We we essentially teach to the test. so that's, that's part of the answer. In fact, I would uh, prefer a system where we made uh, a large test bank of material available uh, to everybody, publicly available. So if we had fourth-grade reading tests, we would have a 1,000 items and then create a test by randomly selecting from those 1,000 items, where the 1,000 items presumably covered the range of content that we were interested in, in reading or math or so forth. Um, so that's an important issue. Secondly, th- there are incentives to cheat, and there are some examples of finding uh, people cheating. Um, uh, one of these examples made it into Freakonomics, um, where Steve Levitt uh, and his co-author discovered some cheating in Chicago public schools. On the other hand, most of this is is in some sense self-correcting in most accountability systems because you can cheat one year, but then the next year, when you're evaluated, you have to cheat as much or more the next year right. to look better. And so my my own view is that, that with basic systems in place, that cheating is not such a big issue.
0: Um, Going back to this this particular method of of I think would be called a merit-pay system where good teachers are paid more than <clears throat> mediocre or poor teachers. Obviously, in a private school system, while there may be various testing procedures in place, uh, most private schools, most universities, uh, but most talking about grade school and high school, most private schools reward teachers if they do, in fact, use merit-pay based on subjective measures of quality, uh, an ability to inspire, an ability to transform, that parents are aware of, that, that, um, that principals are aware of, I think, very vividly in a, in a private school setting. Is your interest in test scores driven by the limits of what's practical in a, in a public school where it's unlikely we'd get to a world where a principal would be given that much authority with public money essentially?
1: Uh, no, I'm, I'm glad you came back to this. I, my, my ideal system would not have it based entirely on test scores and a mechanical system, but in fact I would have subjective information from the principal or other instructional leaders or maybe other teachers if we could design systems that involve them in it uh, for precisely the reasons you've brought up. we There's a range of things that teachers do other than teach fourth-grade mathematics skills in the curriculum, and we want to reward them and recognize that for the broad range of activities and, in fact, for what they contribute to the entire school and, and so forth. Now, I would use some test information, though, because you need to have a way of comparing teachers and principals across schools. Within a school, you can always pretty much line up teachers, but it's hard to tell whether they're doing an absolutely good job or not. Um, My kids went to uh, public schools, uh, pretty gold-plated public schools by many standards, Um, In there I knew which teachers were doing well and which weren't in a comparative sense, but it was very hard to figure out how well this school was doing in an absolute sense. Because the parents, you know, contributed a lot, and you had to to dig this information out.
0: And, yeah, and you obviously didn't have a lot of experience with other fourth-grade teachers uh, in other school systems. You only had your own school, right? I mean, you always know who the good teacher is in that grade, but you don't know if that's a good teacher in absolute terms, as you point out. Um, but if you had your druthers let – me, let me ask it differently um, – isn't much of the problem here the insulation that the public school system has from competition of any kind and the role that competition plays in other markets in providing information and, and the institutions that spring up to, to process that information? The way we've structured public schools in the United States rather bizarrely – we're used to it now because that's what we've always done – but the idea that you have to go to the school in your neighborhood if you want the free schooling or the no-pay schooling is a bizarre concept. And uh, a lot of these solutions we're trying to come up with are ways of trying to uh, work around, given that there's no inherent market forces from the consumer, the parent, the student, uh, to, to exercise the oversight they would normally do in a regular consumer market.
1: Oh, precisely. Um, in, in a larger set of policy alternatives, I would still have serious accountability that measured student performance and provided that publicly, gave that information but I would certainly encourage a lot more competition. Um, competition helps to sort out the good from the bad. It also helps in another matter uh, in terms of our current public schools. Uh, our public schools are heavily influenced today by teachers unions and their influence on contracts and work rules and so forth. One of the things that competition does at least if it's outside competition, where where clients can go elsewhere, is to limit the power that teachers' unions can have in determining what goes on. If there's no competition, then they, their power is not checked in some sense, but their power is checked if they don't have any students showing up at the yeah. door.
0: Um, Talk a little bit about that, the, the role of the, of the unions and, and the contractual restrictions that are going on in schooling today. What are some of the measures of that? Why do you say that?
1: Well, the, uh, the current structure of teacher contracts is largely a function of collective bargaining where there's a what we call the single salary schedule. that is, It's a lookup matrix that has years of experience and amount of graduate education. You look up salaries independent of any other factors such as specialty, Um, we all hear about the shortage of math teachers. Well, math teachers don't appear in this matrix. All teachers get paid the same for experience. Neither do high-quality teachers. This has largely been uh, retained by the pressure of collective bargaining, I think. Um, There are lots of forces in private industry that have salaries go up with experience and so forth. Uh, But it's the insulation from any other factors that's been a function of unions. They have um, frequently, in many districts, bargained over such things as how much time teachers spend in the classroom, how much time they spend outside the classroom, what the class size is, of um, who who can choose whether a teacher is in, t- in a particular school or not. Many contracts allow senior teachers to have first choice of where they teach, regardless of what the principal may think. So there are a variety of ways in which the whole institutional structure of public schools are influenced by collective bargaining.
0: Very depressing. Uh, I hate to end on such a depressing note. Let me let me ask you a, a different question. Given the the heavy hand of both the unions and, and the political structure that we have for, for teaching, what can we hope for as a short-run improvement? What, is, what do you think is politically feasible that is um, possible that would help uh, students, particularly students coming from low-income families, where I think we've done a horrible uh, disservice for now two generations to those kids growing up in, uh, in America's inner cities?
1: Well, I think a couple of things are possible. First, I'm a big supporter of the current accountability movement in the U.S. because shining a spotlight on problems, I think, is very important, even if the current institutions don't allow for much change. Um, secondly, the expansion of choice through charter schools offers some hope, although charter schools are funny institutions um, that are hard to start up. They're new New public schools, but um, they don't, in general, don't have any great structure to them. So they're individual mom and pop stores, which <clears throat> in some places work out, and in other places don't. Um, those are the short-run feasible kinds of alternatives.
0: Is there political pressure on the unions from the growth of homeschooling and charter schools and other factors that are making it uh, maybe a little harder for them to extract the 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 uh, control that they have.
1: Well, I think unions are concerned about this. They certainly fight tooth and nail for, to stop any choice, including charter schools, and to try to inhibit any choice there. Um, whether how effective it is or how important it is, we'll have to wait and see.
0: Well, we're out of time, Rick. that has been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. If you're interested in other podcasts, you can go to econtalk.org where you will find those podcasts along with links and other readings related to this one. Thank you, Rick.
1: You're welcome.